In the name of Jesus Christ, good morning to all of you. It's good to be with you again this morning. I had a wonderful day yesterday and found the, uh, the comments and the various ways in which the historical perspective on the church uh, were presented by a variety of people. Very insightful, fascinating. And uh, uh, I, I hope all of you have enjoyed uh, those and are doing so. Um, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 17. And uh, th- there's a theme, and I, I opened it to be yesterday, but I'd like you to see it today before I read, as well as in the comments that uh, we're going to make about this. Is in, in Ephesus yesterday and Athens today, um, we're looking at a combination of two things. And, and they're, they're rather different, but they're complementary. And, and the one is people who are believers being intentional about the Great Commission. What are the kinds of ways in which you can bring the, the knowledge and the love of Christ to others, as, as God permits? That, that's the one side. And then the other side is the, as God permits side, uh, what are the ways in which God, and, and particularly the Holy Spirit, is working to do things, uh, some of which we have no way of anticipating. It just, just opens these things up sometimes. I'd like you to see both of those, because they're both present uh, all throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, very much, in what we have in Ephesus and Athens, and, uh, as I reflect on what was done yesterday, uh, very much to the story of this church, very much, uh, here are some intentional things people have been doing and are doing, but also, here are the things God is doing, uh, using internotching and sometimes almost going around what we plan. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating mixture. So, uh, Acts 17, I'm going to read starting at verse uh, 34. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, starting at verse 16 and going through verse 34. While Paul uh, waited for his associates in Athens, and this is during his, his second missionary journey, just so you know, uh, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. We'll come back to that in a minute, but right now. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue first with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. They were often called God-fearers, by the way. And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Uh, For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Uh, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Uh, For I was passing through and considering 
the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, uh, him I proclaim to you. So God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, uh, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Uh, and, and so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. No, he's not far from each one of us. Because in him, we live and, and we move and we have our being as some of your own poets have said. And here's the first quotation. For we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Uh, truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked. To, uh, oh, sorry, has overlooked. Uh, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, um, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Quite a story, isn't it? Been intrigued by these kinds of things? By these kinds of openers? I hope you are. I hope you are. Um, from yesterday to today, we are crossing over the Aegean uh, westward from the uh, western coast of Turkey, uh, what the Romans called Asia Minor, crossing westward over the Aegean and landing relatively southern in what we broadly call Greece today. Uh, I am confident that Athens needs no introduction, right? Uh, it really lies at the heart of Western civilization in so many ways, and it's very language, historically, it's very language, Greek, and in fact, the very dialect of Greek that is being spoken centuries earlier in Athens becomes the heart of what we broadly call Koine or Hellenistic Greek, uh, here's the connection, that's the language of the New Testament. There were various dialects of Greek then and now. 
But but that Athens and its and its birthing of this form of Greek that lasted over some centuries uh, becomes that which is the basis of the New Testament. But here's the interesting thing. Remember yesterday, uh, we said that, that Paul, uh, it would seem, chose Ephesus for some strategic reasons, and we listed out some of those. Uh, unlike that, Paul's arrival in Athens, important as the city is historically, was, at least in his mind, at that particular moment, at first anyway, not a strategic target, but it was a convenient connection point. You know, if you're going to meet up with people, especially the days before fast communication, if you say, let's meet up at such and such a time in such and such a place, you better be sure that people don't mix up which place you're meeting at. Right? That, that would be a strategic major mistake. So uh, they had some, some meeting point in Athens, and, and Paul is simply waiting for the time they can meet up. And all of this just opens up. All right? So at least at that moment, unlike his situation in Ephesus, here's Paul just thinking, okay, I'm assuming anyway, it's just going to meet up with his friends and then we'll go from there. And what opens up is is absolutely delightful. And it's interesting because if you look at what what he does while he's there in this, humanly speaking, accidental situation, there's a whole diversity of places that become connection points. Right? We said yesterday. Remember this? We said yesterday. Um, the gospel doesn't go out sort of abstractly. Oh, God, God does what he wants. But the more common thing is people meet with people. And people just do the things people do. And people just meet up with, with who they meet up with. And, and, and they're in their lives in some way, shape, or form. And out of those personal connections sometimes wonderful things develop. And that's what it is. So you start out in the marketplace, briefly, okay, what is the marketplace, the, the agora? Um, loosely speaking, it's their version of Walmart, okay? If you want to choose between 150,000 different kinds of items today, you go to a super Walmart. You all know this, right? right? And, I, and I trust you also know, you don't go to Walmart just to shop, all right? You may have your shopping list, but you go to Walmart to connect you do have Walmarts in this area, don't you? Okay, you guys, I'm getting no response. I thought, oh man, my goodness, maybe you don't have it. Okay, uh, no problem. I mean, the thought that Beaver Falls had something before Boston was a shock in and of itself. But okay, um, so good, uh, we're okay here. Uh, but you go to Walmart because you're going to meet all, well, rub elbows at least with all kinds of people there. And sometimes just strange and interesting things just, just open up on their own. And, and, and that's one, we'll come back to that in a second. And then he spends time with the local synagogue. Now, not for you and for me, but, but for people in that day, if you're Jewish, if you're Jewish, this is the place to connect with other Jews. Uh, just a few years ago, a, a, a Jewish businessman made this comment in my hearing. He said, you know, he said, wherever I go in the world, he said, when I go into such and such a city to do business, the first place I go to is I find, a, a, I find out if the city has a synagogue. Because I know if I connect with other Jews there, I have a network, he says. I have a network to be able to connect with people. Now, whether he keeps it or moves on, that's up to be up for grabs. But the point is, he has the connections. And then, with no intention whatsoever, the Areopagus. We'll talk about that in just a minute, because that's the substance of what we have here. But here are these mixtures of things, 
And, and at least at the moment, this is what's so fascinating. Paul is just there waiting for friends, and door after door after door opens up. And it's not just to spread an ideology. You know, the people in Athens are saying, oh, you know, what, what ideology does this guy have? It's not just that. It's to show the love of Christ. We always come back to this, right? We love because he first loved us. Right? We love because he first loved us. If you, if you have any ability to love someone else because you've been loved, if you have any awareness of, of how to give any kind of light of truth to someone else, it's because you have walked in that light of truth. And you've been shaped by that. And that's what goes on. Allow me, please. uh, uh, I've got to put this connection because it's just amazing to me. And then we're going to look at the substance of what Paul says. Um, As I was preparing these messages uh, over over the weeks past and thinking about, what was I going to do here when I was here for the weekend? Um, uh, I I went out. uh, This is this mixture of half intentional and half accidental. Okay. Now, most of you do not know where Beaver Falls is. Uh, it's just outside of Pittsburgh, and, and it is, it's a backwater. What can we say? But we in Beaver Falls like to look down on somebody else, okay? And so whether it's Wampum, PA, which is just up the road from us, or now my, my favorite, you know, uh, a pecking order looking down someone, Unity, Ohio. Have anyone here heard of Unity, Ohio? No, of course you haven't. Well, maybe Sherry has, but, but most people have not, okay? Unity, Ohio is like nowhere, Okay, that's all you need to know. It's nowhere. It's 20 minutes out of town. And so I had an intentional step, which was fascinating. I'd gone to this gas station because I've been going out and painting my, my daughter's house. And I figured I hadn't painted enough houses over the years. And, and I, I realized the guy who works at this gas station has an Arabic accent. Now, I know you don't think twice about that here. But in Unity, Ohio, okay, these are Yinzers as we call them. The, the, these are these are these are rednecks, okay? And, and and by the way, they're proud to be known as that. That's not an insult in that area, it's a badge, badge of pride. And I thought, what is a guy with an Arabic accent doing in Unity, Ohio? I had to ask. Okay? I'm Nebby in that kind of way. And so I, I bought the gas, I went and, and I said, Sir, I said, you have an Arabic accent. I'm kind of curious, where are you from? And he said, hesitantly, I'm Palestinian. And I thought, you really are a fish out of water. Um, and we started talking. And I said, you know, and he told me where he's from, near Ramallah. I said, I said, I've been very close to your home. I've been past Ramallah and Bethlehem. So I take students out there. Not realizing the young guy behind me whose tattoos start about here and end at ankle says to me, what? You're a professor. What are you a professor of? Because I was covered in paint at the time. At, literally. And, and I said, a professor of religion. He goes, you're kidding me, he says. He says, what do you think about the writings of Jordan Peterson? That guy's, and we start talking about Jordan Peterson. All right, and I don't know if the guy's a believer or not, but he's a very interesting, if you haven't listened to Jordan Peterson, listen to Jordan Peterson. Anyway, I end up, I fall into this amazing dialogue with this guy who's a tattoo artist who's convincing me to come by for tattoo so we can talk philosophy he, 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 he bears his chest so I can see his tattoo of Socrates, his matching tattoo of Plato, and another one of Aristotle in the midst of all of his Taoist symbols that are, that are, that are you know, covering, I don't know how much of the rest of his body, but a good bit of it, at least I can see. Um, and, and he says, we have to talk. Now, here's the, here's the catch. He said, nobody around Unity, Ohio wants to talk philosophy. I thought, surprise, surprise. 
And so I realized in a certain way, each of us lives something like what we're reading here. So every few days, I go into this gas station and I say, Salam Alaikum. It's the only Arabic this guy's going to hear in Unity, Ohio. And he returns, Alaikum Asalam. Okay? He won't hear it from anyone else. And so the dialogue has started cautiously. And so long as I agree to get a tattoo, I can go in and talk more philosophy <laughs> with this other gentleman. And I thought, yeah, this is the Ephesus and Athens story continuing. Trust me, if it can happen in Unity, Ohio, you have to have limitless opportunities for it here. We, we do. All right, let's, let's, let's get into the details. So the Athenian Acropolis, everybody knows, right? Right? The, the, the vision of the Parthenon. We referenced the Parthenon yesterday. Multiply it by four, and you have the, the, old, the old temple at Ephesus, but now, now it happens, of course. The Parthenon, the temple to Athena, not too many yards, approximately as the crow flies, 300 yards northwest of the Acropolis is a rough, rugged, rocky outcropping. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's a famous place, except if you walk up the rock cut stairway from the base of this outcropping up to the top, if you can do that, it's been used for thousands of years and the, and the, the stairs are worn down. By the way, you take your life in your hands to walk up this worn, rocky uh, walkway up to the top. It doesn't look like much at the top except rough rock, and that's where people, apparently, in Athens' glory days, would get to talk politics. Now, the glory days of Athens, at least by those times, have passed by Paul's day, okay? But, but people continued to meet. And what we see in, 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 in Acts 17 and in Athens here is, in one sense, kind of what you would expect, all right? Um, people who are intrigued, right? They're thinkers, they're reflectors, they're religious in a certain sense of religious. And so their ears are open, in, in least, at least in one sense. What's the latest? Most of us are kind of intrigued in, what's the latest? Okay, so what's the latest, Paul? We heard you in these other locations. Um, what's the latest thought? The religious stuff, this strange blend of, well, Judaism, because you're, you know, you're, you're an ex-Pharisee, with these odd new ideas, uh, in this case relating to Jesus. Um, so at least in that, in that kind of general sense, there's an opening. Come up and talk to us. Tell us the latest thing. Um, by the way, latest thing, good news, bad news. Um, it's nice, isn't it, to be aware of how the world is changing. On the other hand, novelty sometimes promises more than it delivers, right? Mm. Well, let's find out if that's one of those. Let's find out what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. That's verse 19. So the open door now has come at perhaps, humanly speaking, the last place you expect to find an open door. It isn't in Unity, Ohio. All right, so we're intrigued. What does a Jewish ex-Pharisee believer in Jesus Christ tell to people who probably have met, they've probably met some Jews in their lives, but, but very few, and, and perhaps few if any Christians at that point. Right? What do you, it's a serious thought for you. What do you say to someone who has as good as no orientation 
to everything that has mattered in any significant way to you? What do you this is no easy question. How do you handle it? How do you interact? What do you say? What do you leave for now? And what do you bring up? These are huge questions. But they're good questions to ask the heart as well as the mind. So, how does Paul start? But let us go through this. Okay, let's start at verse 22. And I just deal with some of the major pieces, starting at verse 22. Gentlemen, I find that you're very religious. By the way, the word he uses, I think, if, if I, I say this because I don't know, because I, I we, we don't speak their dialect, but we think, is a, a kind of an ambiguous word. It can mean religious in the sense of aware of religion and, and the reality in the metaphysical, but it can also mean superstitious. And, and depending on the context, it seems to switch between those two. I suspect this is, this is a well-chosen word on his part. Okay, That's what it seems to be. You're very religious or you're very superstitious. Now this reference... Because I was passing through, and I see an inscription to an unknown god. You may know the story, but here's the back, here's the back story. Roughly five or six centuries prior to that time, uh, as Athens is, is growing in a city, hasn't had its glory days yet, but it's, but it's getting close. And a plague, a dre- seriously, a dreaded plague hits this city, and things are bad. And obviously, at, at the level of technology and, and knowledge of that time, they, they wouldn't have known how this, how this was, was, was going on. How, how does it get spread, right? These are tough things. With, with all of our technology today, there's still so much we don't know. So uh, they get hit by a plague, and, and it's a dire situation, and they don't know what to do, and, and you've got to sympathize. And they bring in, as, as the story goes, there's a lot that's, that's unverified, but as the story goes, they bring in a wise man named Epimenides. And they, and they say, what do we do? You know, this, this is desperate. This is horrible. And, and Epimenides, in, in the best of his pagan wisdom, says, well, you know, clearly you are being punished by some god you have offended. And there's some, some historical linkage as to what had gone on and the details don't concern. And, and he says, what you need to do is get a bunch of sheep and set the sheep loose on the hills around Athens. But, and what do sheep do? I'm not a sheep expert, but what do sheep do? Sheep eat grass and whatever. And eventually, you know how it goes with like lunchtime when you've eaten a nice lunch and you have food coma, right? And you, you want to just doze, you know? Uh, the sheep have their own version of food coma. They lie down. So wherever the sheep lies down, build, a, build an altar and sacrifice that sheep on that altar to the unknown God. And sooner or later, someone is going to make contact with whatever god or gods has been offended, and they'll be placated, and they'll bring the, they'll bring the plague back. And lo and behold, after they do this, uh, uh, cause and effect, let's leave that aside, just describe correlation, right? Uh, they do this, and the plague abates. And Epimenides, as the story goes, goes home, a very wealthy man for his wise insight. Here we are now, half a millennium later in Paul's day, all right? And all of those altars are dotting the city. And, and, and by the way, the, the Roman satirist, Juvenal, by the way, the same guy who, who I, I think coins the phrase bread and circus, something will be familiar to many of you here, um, also comments of Athens as he sees all of these altars to unknown gods, he quips, boy, in Athens, he says, there are more gods than men. All right. So what does Paul do? Think about it. What he does is he starts with what they know. I can't say this is the way you always have to do it, but we can say this is in fact how he did it. 
he starts by climbing inside their world view. Okay? It's at least one approach. I can't say it's the only one. It's one approach. Okay. So he climbs inside their worldview. Now, does he keep the worldview or does he change it? There's a mix. Look at what happens next. So he goes on to talk about, well, I'm going to proclaim to you the details because you're worshiping in ignorance. I don't know how they responded. It doesn't tell us. But, but that's blunt. Okay. The God who made all the world and all things, heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples. In other words, he doesn't need us. That was the message of Isaiah 44, wasn't it? The ridiculousness of a God who needs you to bring it into existence and yet somehow is your God. Ridiculous idea. Okay. And then he gets, and what we have here in verse 26, subtle but he hits very close to a worldview that was held within Athens, or a peace worldview in Athens. God made from one, or one individual, we know him as Adam, right? Every nation or every people group of mankind. You need to know that the Athenians, okay, supposedly had this idea, the, the magic word, don't worry, no one's ever heard it, autochthonous. It means self-sprung. That somehow, if you were one of these great Athenians, you, you weren't just one of those other people out there. You were from this special self-existent race. And Paul politely but directly demolishes that piece of their worldview. Okay? Again, we don't know how they respond, but, but there it is. But the open door is once he's done all these times and boundaries and habitation, that, that they should seek God. They should seek God. Now, here's the interesting thing. And, and I want you to pause. Here's the interesting thing. Um, only certain people can be brilliant. Only certain people have extraordinary gifts. Some do. Okay? Only certain people can say that they rise above the average of the rest of us. Some people can genuinely say that. But, but what does it take to meet up with your maker? Does it take greatness or brilliance or skill or fame or wealth, or any other kind of human status or capacity where someone can say, I've arrived because of what I've done. And, and I know you know the answer, of course, is none of these things. The question is, then, then what does it take to meet your creator? This is the same question people have had for thousands of years. What do, what do I need? What, what, what gets me to the origin of what makes me, me? Well, here it is. That they, verse 27... That people could at least seek God. Can, can Humanly speaking, can anyone seek for something? Sure, if you're curious, if you're hungry, you'll seek for something. That they might grope for him. Have you ever been in total darkness and you couldn't see your way around, but you sort of feel your way wherever you have to go or for whatever you have to look for? That's groping, okay. In a sense, anybody can grope. Anyone can be humble. Anyone can, can grope. Um, and you know what? If someone is humble in heart and who knows their neediness and who knows what they aren't and who knows that whatever they may have, they're, for, frankly, in, in this life, which is terribly short and passing anyway, they're even less than that. Can they at least say to God, I'm desperate? Well, Jesus encourages encourage that kind of an attitude. By the way, it's good for life. It never gets old. You can grope for him. You can be needy. 
How do we know this? You could have quoted the Old Testament, Paul. That would have worked. But look who he quotes. Verse 28. First a quote from Epimenides. In God, we live and we move and we exist. He's bigger than all of us. He's around everywhere. It's not that we can't find him. It's that we can't escape him. It's the opposite. All right? And, and this is fascinating. And as some of your own poets have said, and Paul takes another quotation. This is from a guy named Aratus, who in his praise of Zeus, praise of Zeus, said, we are Zeus's offspring. We're his offspring. Now, in, in one sense, in, in what sense is that, or is that not good to apply? Well, to Zeus, absolutely not. But here, Paul co-opts that, drawing from the pagan speakers, but applying it to the true God of heaven and earth, right? Where is often the meaning? We've all been created by him. In that sense, in that sense. We're his offspring. So being then, verse 29, the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as things that we fashion. God is overlooking those. God is generously being patient and putting up with times of ignorance and so forth. And what we have here is the apostle, as he both draws from, but then also turns on its end, the wisdom of the wise, which he talks a lot about in his letters. Uh, The wisdom of the wise, he encourages an attitude, I think a lifelong attitude, yes, of humility, of uh, realism about ourselves, of admitting to need, and shortcomings, right? Of acknowledging that though on the one hand, all of us are in the image of God, and yet we are a badly fractured image, as one of my friends likes to say. It's like a broken mirror. You've got cracks running through it. It still reflects the image, but it does a poor job of doing that. And in these ways, God, it would seem, is, is employing Anything he pleases to bring people's souls to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which, as you know, Jesus encouraged in the Sermon on the Mount, among other places. Um, Whether or not Paul actually used the name of Jesus on that occasion, we don't know. As Luke has recounted the story, um, he references Jesus, right, by that one whom God has raised from the dead, he will judge all. We know Jesus is being mentioned. You just don't know if it's by name or not. So maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But once again, in this, uh, humanly speaking, chance occasion where this door just opens up, uh, the apostle is able to give uh, a testimony to Jesus who humbled him, knocked him down from the horse, spoke to him, in that moment, actually it was a couple of days of blindness, and completely turned his soul and his life's circumstances in 180 degrees. So what's the wisdom from this Areopagus story for us today? Um, opportunities that uh, come to know and to relate and to speak and to love often come unexpectedly, don't they? All right? And by the way, it's a good thing to be a planner. We're not speaking against that, but just often the things that happen just happen because God has been planning it all along, then as well as today. 
And we look patiently to the ways in which God might use any of us, young or old, in any state of life, on weekdays or on good days, we look for the ways in which God will be pleased to send the feet of those and the hands of those and the mouths of those who bear good tidings to do that kind of work. Sometimes fruit ripens very slowly. Uh, many of us, I suspect today, would say when, when God got a hold of us, uh, it wasn't on a single day that it happened, but maybe for a number of years, maybe decades, I don't know, but through a whole sequence of circumstances in life, uh, slowly, piece by piece, God is, is taking certain pieces out, putting other pieces in, and then ripening the fruit when he's ready. Uh, and some people were, were responsive within days, weeks, or months. Others, I, we, we don't know, but God was doing what he wants. Um, my final piece here, truth anchors us. Paul's always talking the truth of Christ, the truth of God, the truths of reality as God sees them, not just as human beings observe them. Truth anchors, but love sails the boat. Right? Truth anchors it. Every boat needs a good anchor and a good mooring sometimes. So truth anchors, but the way boats move, uh, human boats anyway, uh, are by love. Jesus said to us, they will know you by your love for one another. Okay? And so reality of the gospel and its manifestation, the fifth gospel, as someone was pointing out yesterday, so to speak, uh, are the ways in which God is in fact uh, doing the things of the kingdom and I hope for this church many, many good years ahead of more kingdom work. Blessings on all of you, as long as you have that part in it. Lord, um, wherever we are in life and the particular circumstances and relationships of life, um, would you please be pleased to bring the love of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the eternal truths of heaven, but also the immense patience, mercy, and grace that you love to lavish on people. May these come in any way you see fit, and, and to the degree you use us to do that, we are pleased to be a part. And so many of us will say very readily right here, there are many, many places we might have been had we not been won over by that truth and love. And we thank you for grasping a hold of us before we went over this or that precipice. And would you please continue to work a work of grace inside and around us. And I pray that for this congregation that in its collective life, it would be a pleasant, winsome, warm, and continue to be a loving beacon to those who come through this city. And I pray this in Jesus' name. We pray this together, asking for such things. Amen.